0: Welcome to Prio's Peace in a Pod, where we at the Peace Research Institute Oslo bring you expert perspectives on the headlines, personal stories from the field, and cutting edge research on the peace and conflict issues affecting today's societies.
1: Hello and welcome to this special uh, edition of the Prio podcast series. I'm Nick Marsh. I'm a senior researcher here at the Peace Research Institute Oslo and we're going to be talking about academic fraud. This is uh, quite a different subject uh, to what your regular listeners uh, will be used to, but when we're talking about peace research, um, the research side of that is just as important as the peace side. If people are to speak truth to power, they need to know what that truth is, and we hope that they can find that out via research. But Truth is very difficult to find. Research is very difficult. We spend uh, our times, our lives trying to avoid bias, but one of the most important sources of bias in research is is fraud, is people lying. So we're going to discuss that now. So I'd like to let the guests introduce themselves uh, so you can get used to their voices.
2: Uh, My name is Nick Brown. Um, I've acquired a bit of a reputation over the last few years for... uh poking around in scientific papers that don't seem terribly coherent and sometimes finding fraud and other forms of uh, misconduct in there. Um, You may know me from such uh, incidents as the case of uh, Professor Brian Wansink, the rather well-known food author who brought you stories such as, uh, if you go shopping when you're hungry, you'll buy more junk food, and uh, if you uh, eat off a smaller plate, you'll consume fewer calories. And... um, with a couple of colleagues, we demonstrated that a great deal of his work was uh, plagiarized or faked. And, um, But I'm, I've been involved in quite a few other scientific fraud cases since four or five in the last year, including some fairly fraudulent COVID research. We actually had a retraction yesterday.
0: I'm Lynn Nigord, I'm a special advisor at Prio, and I help people with their academic publishing, and I also research on, on uh, research productivity.
3: I'm Sebastian Schotte. I'm a senior researcher here at PRIO, and I um, research um, microdynamics of violence and civil war, and social media and communal violence and things like that. But I'm also a deputy editor at the Journal of Peace Research.
1: Um, thanks very much. So, uh, I'd first like uh, if we can discuss, you know, what we're talking about when we uh, refer to academic fraud. Um, what kind of activities? Um, so, Nick, uh, could you give us, um, you know, a brief
2: overview? Uh, well, the traditional breakdown is into falsification, sorry, fabrication, falsification, and plagiarism. But I think maybe a better uh, breakdown is into uh, scientific fraud, where you either make up the whole study or you run the study but then you replace the data that you don't like with the data that you do like, which I would consider quite similar um and then at the other end the academic type fraud which might be uh, plagiarism or it might be stealing authorship or, or um issues around uh, credit and publication so i would i would i think probably um prefer if if we if that was the split um so to say that there is scientific fraud and academic fraud i think is a a defensible split of that
0: yeah well, i was uh thinking that there is, as you say, there's this academic fraud where you're talking an awful lot about like, people claiming authorship when they don't deserve it, or people uh, should have been authors or are no longer authors, and uh, things like that are things that I've, I've definitely seen in, in my practice. And there's uh, part of the problem is that there's a lot of unclear uh, rules around this. I work a lot with young researchers and people from different places who actually don't know what the practices are. But I think one of the things that you're talking about is, is uh, not just... Uh, ignorance, but deliberate manipulation of of systems. And maybe you can talk a little bit about the difference between uh, and, and people who do these almost accidentally or or just out of not knowing what they're doing and people who have planned this from the very beginning and do it for reasons other than ignorance. Uh,
2: there's lots of things that go wrong in research because uh, methods are difficult. Statistics is a difficult subject. Uh, I have a expression I like to say that being good at statistics requires an amount of learning roughly equivalent to flying an aircraft, uh, whereas most scientists are going out there with a driving license and trying to fly that Cessna and are you know, bashing it into a hill occasionally. And you know, they don't even know it because you know, they just didn't land where they thought they were going to, but nobody told them. Um, and there is lots of unintentional, terrible science going on. Um, there is a whole reform movement in science at the moment, the open science movement, which is attempting, among other things, to get people to realise this, to understand that it's advocating for much better statistics education, much better understanding of of what an experiment means, how we do causality. Um, I think if you were somebody who didn't wasn't aware of that, and then you become aware of that, and then you continue to use your existing terrible practices you could regard that as an example of 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 fraud but what i'm talking about is i think much easier it, there's there's very little doubt in the kind of cases i've been investigating someone's not going to go oh i didn't realize you weren't meant to actually write up the results of participants who didn't exist you know there's there's no great grey area there
1: yeah. and sebastian um
3: yeah um so my encounters with uh, the type of scientific fraud you describe, uh, Nick, um, have yeah really started pretty early on when I was doing my PhD. And uh, one of the things we used to do um, was to replicate very high profile studies uh, in sort of technical branch of social science, uh, simulation models, um, machine learning models. And uh, in some of these examples, uh, we just found that things didn't replicate the way they were supposed to, uh, according to the paper. But I must say, even now, a whole bunch of years later, I look at these cases and it is very difficult for me to say whether or not this was all intentional or at least partially accidental, because, you know, some, some miscommunication in the paper can happen in observational studies, we have what Gary King calls this problem of, you know, the garden of the forking paths. You can look at a set of data from many different angles for very good reasons. And you might go down this these forking path, making your design decisions in your research design saying, oh, we should use that, this statistic or that statistic, or we should also do XYZ and control for XYZ and then you convince yourself maybe this is not the right way of doing it so you backtrack you do something else but what you what happens inadvertently is that you're exploring a space in which certain results might align with your theory and other results don't and i must say this is a huge problem in 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 my eyes that yes i see the clear cut cases that you investigate but i see this also larger gray area where it's genuinely difficult uh, to say whether or not something was intentional. And as a deputy editor at JPI, I also see a lot of good research. This needs to be said as well. There's a lot of genuine great research out there and and, and genuine great effort on, on all sides. Um,
1: thanks, Sebastian. Uh, I'm, I'm- I think that leads us nicely to the question of, you know, how prevalent is scientific fraud or or academic fraud? Um, you know, is it like uh, an asteroid hitting some some kind of incredibly rare event uh, that you know we can't really guard against, or or is it something um, uh, you know like other. Uh, kinds of antisocial behavior or criminal behavior you know where we just uh, you know have to assume that it 's happening around us um even if it 's just a minority of people um uh nick do you do you have uh you know ideas uh, surveys et cetera on how prevalent it is
2: there isn 't really a great deal um i mean it it 's a very hard subject to research um there are some studies where about two percent of people asked. Will admit to committing fraud, but um, people self-select to answer those. Um, they will tell you that they've seen their more a larger percentage will tell you that they've seen their colleagues committing fraud. But you know, there's a little bit of self uh, self-servingness there. Um, to me, uh, in my own home field of psychology. Uh, I can't get out of my head the fact that, for the last sixty years, uh, studies where people have gone out and said, gone out to a bunch of authors and said, "Can I see your data, please?" Um, the the rate of um, getting those data has remained at about forty percent after multiple um, reminders and follow-ups. Less than fifty percent of authors share their data. Um, when in many cases, you know, you can just send over the the the, the Excel file, and um, if the person says, "Look, that's enough. I just I don't actually need to understand all the day, Just please send me the basic data," nothing happens, and I'm I find it hard to believe that sixty percent of people are not sharing their data and that the data exists in all those cases. So I suspect that in quite a lot of cases, uh, there is a uh, something bad going on. And it, you know, it pains me to say it. The other thing is when I give this kind of talk, people come up to me afterwards and sort of, you know, whisper things in my ear. Um, and that happens quite a lot now. Again, you know, we don't, this isn't a scientific sample. So it's a very difficult, um, it's very difficult to get a a handle on because, we don't. E- it's, it's a crime, but we don't even know the crime has been committed. You know, It's not like we're going out there and saying, okay, this many banks are getting robbed and we don't know who's doing it, but we can at least count the number of banks being robbed. Not only do we not know who's doing it, we don't even know how much of it there is.
0: I was wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the red flags. I mean, the, one of the concrete co- uh, examples of, of plagiarism I was uh, witness to was we discovered that, uh, it wasn't at PRIO, but another place that I worked, we discovered an employee had a a large number of single-authored publications in a field where that wasn't necessarily all that common, and it turned out to be obscure doctoral theses that this person had claimed for their own and slapped their own name on and published, and then that person ended up having to retract uh, almost everything that they had written. But one of the red flags that came up was a large number of single-author publications in a field where you would expect... Uh, some solo po- publication, but also quite a bit of co-authorship. What are some of the red flags that you see when you're looking for fraud
2: um, in in empirical papers? Also, I mean, first, yeah, first, single sole author empirical papers by quite senior people. Um, you know, you're meant to you're meant to be training people. Why aren't your grad students on this paper? Why weren't they involved? Uh, where is your postdoc? Um, why is there not even an acknowledgement of a research assistant? you know, in in the acknowledgement section. Um, no mention of funding. Uh, oh, I sort of did it on my hobby time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, senior professors do not go and collect data on their hobby time. This is Staples. Uh, Diedrich Staples claimed, the, the Dutch uh, psychologist who made up a lot of data, that he'd gone out into the field himself in his car and walked around collecting data. And he was dean of social sciences, and he claimed he was collecting this data. Um... Within the papers themselves, there are some technical things that we sometimes look for. Um, hundred, Exactly 100 people in each group um, claimed 100% response rates to surveys because if you don't have a 100% response rate, you've got to model the non-responders, and that requires a degree of complexity in the modeling that some people are not up to, whereas if you can just do a T-test, then that's you know, a lot simpler. Um So there are things that awaken one's suspicion, but they're not something that you can then go... You can't just go and get a search warrant or go in front of a judge or whatever the equivalent is on the basis of they happen to have 100 people in each of their groups. You know, nothing wrong with that. Um, So there is a kind of... We could call it the sort of legitimate businessman effect, you know, and the fact that they the 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 person that sort of you know appears to be dressed like a mobster doesn't necessarily mean that they are a mobster it's it's quite you know it's perfectly legitimate to dress in that sort of you know style of suit and carry a violin around with you so um and it is a, a general problem for science is that we are trained as scientists to not affirm the consequent and a great which is in the legal system corresponds to uh, circumstantial evidence a great deal of the evidence for fraud is circumstantial it's very rare to find direct evidence and yet as scientists we're trained to be very skeptical um, about circumstantial evidence and so it's part of the problem is that we invest the people investigating the problem are not uh, law enforcement officers they don't work on balance of probabilities they don't work on okay yeah uh, so we probably avoid most of the possible miscarriages of justice but we don't actually put many people away because of that reluctance to consider a preponderance of circumstantial evidence as quite likely you know wrong I think uh,
3: looking for such red flags and understanding them is is super helpful but um it, as you said, it is circumstantial. And, um, I mean, scientific fraud is uh, a career-ending transgression. So you want to get your allegations right. And that requires a lot of hard work. And this hard work, I think, doesn't really have a place cut out for itself in the academic enterprise mm-hmm. as, as it is today. I mean, uh, you, uh, Nick, have... Uh, stated in other places that you came to this line of research as a little bit of an outsider um, and uh, weren't sort of um, pursuing the standard academic career where you get your PhD um, and then you get your postdoc and then, you know, go through the assistant professorship and tenure and so on and so forth. So there aren't that many people like you who can do this type of work. And maybe you have an idea or someone else has an idea for how this place in academia can be reinforced and how it can be sort of um, strengthened a little bit uh, from, a, from a systematic point of view.
2: It's very, very difficult. Um, if you created a sort of science FBI, um, what would the career structure look like? And what would happen after you had done that for five years and you said, okay, I've done my five years in the science FBI. I'd like to go off and do lab work now you wouldn't be very popular. Um, I Something I've noticed, this is anecdotal, and, and maybe your listeners will come back with counterexamples, but I have the impression, for example, that not many people have many friends who work in law enforcement, and not many people who work in law enforcement have many friends outside of law enforcement. And there's probably good reasons for that as well, because, you know, if, if, if someone is you know a good friend uh, and you're a law enforcement officer and one day you discover you have to bust them, that's going to hurt. And I think um, I wonder what it looks like to say, okay, yes, you are now a, you are now a data police officer. Um, you can't give someone a 40-year career doing that. It's going to have to be on a secondment basis. And it's not going to look good on your CV. It's, it's not going to help you get jobs because nobody... Nobody wants to hire somebody of absolutely impeccable integrity for any job. We know that whistleblowers have enormous difficulty getting hired in any job afterwards, outside the organization they were in, because when we hire somebody, no matter how well-intentioned we are, no matter how good people we are, we kind of hope that if push comes to shove within the organization that they will be loyal to us and it would be you know e- even if you're not doing anything wrong but you're doing something a little bit on the edge of the rules. You don't want the person you just hired to phone up HR and say, hey, Nick isn't following exactly the expenses policy. And you're going, well, yeah, I'm not defrauding it. But there was this, you don't want people who are too honest. So it's really hard. It's really hard for for anyone who's worked in that kind of uh, job to get, you know, it, it would be very hard if you were in charge of detecting fraud in labs to get hired other than in a lab where absolutely everyone was absolutely certain that nothing bad had ever happened. And there really aren't that many of those places. so Yeah, I I agree that
1: uh, some kind of data police, um, you know, there'll be a lot of problems with that. But uh, what about uh, changes in sort of uh, academic norms, institutional cultures? Um, For example, there's been a lot of attention in the last few years regarding open data and um expectations that researchers should share their data um uh, you know unless there's a very good reason why they shouldn't um uh you know w- would that be a uh, a way to try to reduce the the incidence of fraud
2: i th- i think in most in most settings where it's not that difficult to uh, anonymize participants i i don't see why that shouldn't be done more i don't i don't think it's necessarily Happening quite as fast as those of us who believe in open data like to think, and I think we are sometimes in danger of believing our own propaganda. Um, the vast majority of uh, da- journals still have absolutely no meaningfully enforceable data sharing policy, and and even the ones that say you will share your data, um, there's nothing on the website that says if you if we get a call three months after your article is published saying that you've deleted. The public copy of your data we will retract your article it's sort of oh well that won't happen either so it's still it's still based on this idea that everybody is is a terribly nice person and no one would do anything remotely untoward uh, which of course is the problem is that people are doing things that are untoward and you can't you know you can't have a model in which everybody's absolutely wonderful um, and expects to Uh, counteract bad actors with that
1: yeah um lynn um i wonder if you could talk about the the sort of balance between expectations for privacy um uh, and uh, particularly amongst um uh, people who are on ethics committees and uh, and things uh, and the balance between privacy and sort of sharing data as a means to try to prevent fraud happening
0: yeah, I, I do definitely see a tension in, in the ethics here because uh, certainly in, in recent years, the, the, the emphasis is, was on protecting the privacy of individuals, and it goes much further than just taking the names off the thing. If you're dealing with, for example, an identifiable place and, and, and enough data points, you can start tracing back – even if there's no names, you can start tracing back who who these people might be. And if it's, uh, for example, uh, vulnerable groups, that can they can be at risk of being identified – um, so there's, there's been enough examples of that to make people very, very wary about sharing their data, even if it's anonymized, uh, that it might, might be impossible to anonymize to the extent where it might protect the informants. But I've noticed that oh, in recent years, as you've been talking about, there's a movement towards open Data, and and this is of course easier in, in larger quantitative uh, research things where you have data that's easier to strip of all kinds of identifying, and you have so many data points that it's difficult to uh, to, to to identify individuals uh, or even smaller groups of people. But the you know when you're talking about more qualitative research or you're talking about uh, smaller data points, then it becomes more difficult. And I was wondering if you have any reflections on where where you might see that that balance going. I think
2: there will obviously be cases where you can't can't put the transcripts or the edited tapes online. You go into a war zone and you interview people. But I think there are a couple of points here. First is that it ought to be possible when you submit that to a journal for the editor to say, OK, I would like to share your interviews with Professor whoever, who is your reviewer. Do you agree that he is a trustworthy person to have this? The other thing is, who vetted you to go into that zone and interview these people? You've got that knowledge. They confided in you. Um, how do we know that you aren't going to go back to that government if you get a phone call from from, from the, the oppressive government saying either here's $50,000 or we know where you live? So th- it, this uh, this kind of model of, oh, I'm absolutely 100% perfectly proof, and I can't trust anybody else in the world with these interviews is a way of saying, well, okay, if I hadn't been around, these interviews would never have happened, whereas, in fact, what would have happened is the NGO would have hired somebody else to do it and they would have done the same level of vetting or whatever it is. So I think it is possible to construct situations where data are made available for review for almost every conceivable situation. And if it isn't, then I think we really have to ask why we're even doing the research and allowing the researcher to go along. Because unless they're, you know, Mahatma Gandhi or some other, you know, the Pope or some other mythical super uh, trustworthy figure, we're all imperfect in that sense. So, yeah, there, there, is a, there has to be a scale of sharing. But I think this idea of, oh, well, we better make sure that nobody ever sees it is just a way of saying we're going to guarantee that no one can check your work. And I think that in itself is an ethical problem vis-a-vis the subjects to say, we would like you to give us these, this important data, this very person, this very sensitive data, in to someone who can never be checked. And I think that's in itself actually an ethical issue. Uh, it's less obvious than the one of we must stop the data leaking out but um i'm not sure that the person who's arguing that is always in the room of the IRB when we're having the ooh better stop anything bad happening policy because nothing is nothing is 100% black and white it's a security question and all security questions are about balance of risk and cost
3: yeah i um think this is this is correct there are very few scenarios in which data sharing is really inherently impossible. So at the Journal of Peace Research, we do require replication data to be uploaded. We host it ourselves, so it cannot be tracked by the author. But we had a discussion last year in the editorial board uh, about whether or not we need to step up our game and run the replications. Because only when you run the replications will you find the errors in the code the things that are not intuitive, the things you have to, in many cases, just resolve through dialogue with the author, um, how it's supposed to work, and things like that. But it, to some extent, comes down to person hours that are being unavailable for this particular job. I mean, um, it is a tough requirement. So in quantitative social science, you have multiple programming languages that are being used. Um, Somebody would have to be so versed in them You have to pay them, of course, for the time they're investing. Uh, They're not advancing their own careers um, as PhD students, as postdocs, and so on. So we were grappling with this without bringing it to a really satisfactory uh, conclusion uh, in terms of building in-house capability for replication. And among the other social science journals that I've submitted to and published in, I've only seen it once that a very rigorous replication was being done in-house requiring the code and the data, whereas the
2: requirement to share code and data is is, is becoming more mainstream, I think. I, I have a preprint out. I was, I was the initiator of the project, but I'm last author now because someone else took it over. I have a preprint out uh, as of two or three weeks ago where we went to uh, a leading psychology journal that gives us an open data badge. And uh, they had an, an issue where every article had the open data badge. So we went and looked, uh, you know, what could we do with that open data badge? Could we run the analyses? And in more than half the cases, we really couldn't. Uh, either there was no code or the code didn't run or it wasn't clear what you had to do with it. Um, and we, one of our recommendations is, first of all, it should be called the open code and data badge and you've got to provide the code, but also that you should in some way have to demonstrate that it works. And it really isn't that difficult. If you know, if you write your code in a relatively common package to say you 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 load this, you go into this directory, you load this, it gets a bit more complex with some of the machine learning stuff, but there weren't too many of those. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm on the board of a, a, a journal called Meta Psychology in Sweden. You that was the one you were referring to, and we do a computational reproducibility check on every article, but we do it after it's accepted. So we accept the article in principle, and then somebody from the journal. Does it so? There are the journal itself is kind of hosted by a university, and there are everyone who contributes is expected to put in a little bit of effort uh, towards doing that, and that's part of their service at the journal. And um, I, I submitted an article there, and you know there were there was there was a decimal point in the wrong place in a table of results that I copied and pasted, and they found it. You know that was um, so, but that isn't going to happen. Uh, in a publishing world where there are fifteen, twenty thousand academic journals, there's there's three hundred in or eight hundred in psychology or whatever, and uh, the pile it high and sell it cheap, as they say. You know, they're churning stuff out by the bucket load, and nobody cares. Nobody cares. So um,
1: another way that we could try to reduce the sort of incidence of fraud would be to think about the incentives. Um, you know, why do people commit uh, fraud. Um, uh, and it seems that, you know, there's many different reasons. Um, uh, Nick, you translated a, a book by a, a, a very high profile um, Dutch uh, professor who committed fraud. I was wondering if you could talk about how he explained why he did it.
2: Yeah, this is a, a Dutch psychologist called Diederik Stapel. And uh, I presume you'll put the link in the notes of the... Uh, and I uh, He was caught having been fabricating and and falsifying his data for many years. Um, And he wrote a sort of confessional book about it, which uh, with his permission, actually, I translated into English, so that's available for free download. And he described um, that uh, he was kind of getting the thrill of scoring a publication. And it's a lot easier to score a publication in a high-ranking journal if your numbers come out right, if you get a positive result saying, uh, what you wanted to do, so he had a he had a study in science, which demonstrated that messy environments lead to more discrimination, stereotyping, and ultimately racism. And this was a message people wanted to hear, you know. Oh, this this railway station is dirty. People are going to be more racist. You could actually make a fairly coherent story about why. Uh, disorder promotes more harmony. I don't know if you've ever been in a, in a, in a t- London tube train that gets stuck. But after about 15 minutes, people start talking to each other. Um, but if you were to go to a city and say, we've discovered that messy environments reduce racism, then that's going to be a very interesting meeting of the sanitation department next time they ask for their budget to be increased. So he would be producing these articles that said what people want to hear and it's very easy to do that, and nobody's going to question them when you get the you know expected results that the doctrine of your of your um, of your field produces. Um, but so he he talked in terms of you know the 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 buzz of scoring, but that was when he was dean. Now, when he was a grad student, I suspect he was probably making some stuff up then, and maybe that was to get on the ladder. He, he's less forthcoming in the book about.
0: I was wondering if, because uh, you were talking about some of the, the incentives that, that keep things the way they are, like the, the pressure to publish, the bias against positive results. Uh, you know, you, you, if you have no findings, these aren't going to get uh, published. But maybe you can talk about what what, what would an incentive shift look like and how, how what kinds of things could we put in place that might change – the math that people do in their heads about what something was uh, a good idea or not i mean you also talked about some real world lessons that we could learn from from other environments for example airport checks or or spot testing for i don't for, think for,
2: we're, for we're going to change the incentive structure of academia anytime soon the the funding system the grant system is it's an untouchable line item on pretty well every government budget and it's not about to go away. And and in fact, the you know, the if it did, it would be because of some huge uh seismic shift, probably involving Donald Trump. Uh, and we probably wouldn't enjoy um the results. So I I I we can we can have a sort of um, you know, cafe clutch discussion about wouldn't it be great if? but none of that's going to happen. The, academics, the academic invent is, is simply not going to change. So it would be great if the incentives weren't that perverse, but I, I, I kind of don't even talk about that because it's just not going to happen. In terms of practical things you could do, um, you could. one of the ideas I've had is that a journal could say, if you by submitting to us, uh, you enter your paper into a lottery, and if your number comes up, we will conduct a public audit of your uh, data uh, and we will publish the results, whatever they say. And by submitting to the journal, you agree to do that and you agree to cooperate. And if you then withdraw your cooperation, we will publish that you submitted and you withdrew your cooperation. And now the idea being that you would then be the kind of journal where people have sub- have gone through what we could call the airport security check Oh, I mean, at the moment, everyone goes through the airport security check, but you can, you know, you, a situation where you know you could be picked out at random and checked. Um, and therefore, I think for a fairly, a fairly low number of checks, you would create the idea that this journal has higher quality data simply because people who might submit uh, fraudulent articles to it would be running the risk of public shaming. I personally don't think that's particularly likely to happen either. But I think it could happen in that one or two journals could decide to do it. It's not like changing the entire culture of the entire academic world. I still think it's, yeah, it's fairly unlikely. But if, if, if you had a particularly enlightened editor coming in at Nature... or or one of the top journals in a particular field and said, from now on, we're going to run this lottery system and you can be called out and we will publish that. Um, I think it would cause a little bit of a seismic shock um, because I think um, people don't want to get caught. People won't commit any kind of crime if they think there's a, a, a chance above a certain level that they will get caught. I think for people who are stealing for food, they'll accept quite a high risk. I think people who are uh, prepared to fake papers at the moment, they perceive that the risk is somewhere between homeopathic and zero. And I think if people thought there was a 1% chance that their fraudulent publication would be outed, that would put an awful lot of people off because scientists are not, for the most part, high-risk thrill-seekers.
3: I think that's a great idea. And um, even if the incentives don't change fundamentally, it's it's also important to look at this sort of in terms of maybe supply and demand. Um, so for a while, pumping out lots of observational studies, uh, quantitative studies in social science was sort of perceived as a wise career move. But when the market is flooded with sort of these statistical studies that are not extremely trustworthy, and they come, they're not fraudulent necessarily, but they come, you know, by the metric ton uh, into your Google Scholar feed. And they ask very particular small questions that don't really aggregate into a large explanation of, of social processes. People also become less interested. And hiring committees become less interested, and if you have individual applicants who take the high road and submit to these journals where they have a check policy in place or just a very good reputation um, for taking the methodology and research design very seriously, you can stand out uh, and and I think this is something that might be happening today um, of course. There are other tendencies where just the high-ranking journals are just, or the high-impact journals are just perceived as high-impact journals without having much to show for in terms of real checks of you know underlying data analyses. They're just sort of the legacy journals that are perceived as as leading.
2: The the part of the problem is that the the universities are absolutely addicted to impact factor as a measure of evaluation because it's so much easier than actually reading the papers uh, when you need to decide who to hire or promote. And um, there are various initiatives that universities can sign up to to say, we won't do this anymore. And they tend to sign up to it and then ignore it. Um, So uh, you know, we're starting to get into the sociology of the whole issue of, of how do you get organizations to just respect what they've signed up for, for goodness sake. Um, and, uh, but that, again, that's part of the the really hard to change culture. Also because whenever you're trying to change culture, that needs to come from the top. And the people at the top are by definition the people whom the system has served pretty well up till now.
1: Uh, I mean, one way to to motivate that kind of change um, is to think about what kind of damage um, fraud does uh, to both to, you know, our our role as researchers. um, You know, if we can't actually trust uh, the articles that we're reading, the articles that we're basing our own research on, that's a problem. Uh, But there's also the problem of public trust in science, the the extent to which fraud... um, Erodes uh, the extent to which research will actually believe, be believed um, by the public, by, by people in government. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm wondering if we could talk a bit about how fraud ha, has eroded that, that kind of trust.
2: I say the, the example I gave uh, earlier was the earlier today, and the talk I gave was uh, of some people who were making up research claiming to show that um, uh, increased CO2 in the atmosphere leading to ocean acidification was having horrific effects on fish. And they were just fabricating that. Now, it's quite possible that there is some kind of modest effect, but they were just claiming, making absolutely ludicrous claims. And their colleagues, you know, who were saying, look, this isn't correct, they published, you know, publishing a, a criticism of it. Uh, and um, this is before it got to the fraud state. This was just saying, look, these results are, are, are simply implausible. And hey, presto, the climate deniers are putting this on their blogs, and you know you see it's all made up and you know these scientists are all fraudulent well apart from the ones who blew the whistle and um it it yeah now the thing is of course that the the people doing that don't really care um you know they don't have the they're just not very good people and they don't care about the overall reputation of science that's just you know a bigger problem for them uh, sorry that's a problem for everyone else rather um Uh, And so I'm not sure that appealing to scientists not to commit fraud because it will uh, damage the reputation of science, I mean, that's a a reason not to do it, but I'm not certain that people are going to go, oh, well, I was going to commit fraud and get a promotion, but since it'll affect the reputation of science, I won't do it. I'm not sure if that's actually going to enter into the logic of the people who are prepared to do that.
0: Well oh, perhaps not. But we're touching on a really, uh, you know, speaking as an American, this this is a huge problem. You've got a whole, but in the U.S. in particular, science is is held up as another opinion. So I'm, yeah. I have a right to my opinion, yeah. and science has a right to their opinion. Yeah. And and unless we can ban, uh, bang our fists on the table and say, no, no, science is something different. It's yeah. not about your opinion. It's about something we can point at. And so what we're looking at here is is an erosion of of as you say an erosion of this trust. And that sort of raises the question of the more we out fraud. do we make this worse? Do we give people the idea that that fraud is is really but if we don't out people, then it becomes safe to do fraud and i and I feel like this is a this is a dilemma that that I'm not even really sure what the best way forward is to reestablish trust with the public.
2: The alternative is taking part in the cover up. I think we have to out it and we have to try and reduce it before it's too late and we have to say yeah this is happening we are we you know, here's the quantification of it and here's what we're going to do to harvest in 5 years uh denying it is not going to get you anywhere because you know some of the cases are just too big to uh to fail in in, in the case of um of Brian Wansink the uh, the food uh, researcher uh the 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 right wing people picked up on that because although he actually is a registered republican uh donated to Mike Huckabee's presidential campaign in 2007 and uh, was hired by the George Bush White House, Uh, he produced a report which, because of the cycle, happened to land on Michelle Obama's desk when she was vice president on the nutritional guidelines, and it became Brian Wansink, typical lying liberal, blah, 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 Uh, and it got twisted. You know, he wrote these guidelines, nutritional guidelines for your kids, blah, blah. And and yeah, it, it, it... it got twisted. But the, the point was underlying that, yes, there was some fraud going on. Uh, and so it will get twisted.
3: Uh, Nick, you started out the sort of discussion and uh, the, the definitions of um, of fraud with this distinction between the scientific side of things, the academic side of things. I think this is very profound distinction also for the re-establishment of trust. Because as scientists, we're not committed to universities or research institutes or job titles like professor or anything. We're committed to making sense of the world in a particular way, asking nature or society questions that can be asked repeatedly and learning from the answers over time, over generations, over centuries. And academia, on the other hand, is just a real world sort of implementation of that. Sort of like Marxism is the theory and it sounds all good, but then you have the Communist Party, (laughs) you know, Mm. or Christianity is the plan. Mm. And then you have the Catholic Church. And it's the same for science and academia. Mm. And we have to be scientific fundamentalists and we have to hold academia's feet to the fire. And you said that fundamental incentives aren't going to change. You might be right. I hope you're not, but we should keep trying. To change incentives and to you know make sure that scientific standards don't erode under academic incentives i
2: i, I think um, it's one of the reasons why i concern myself much more with scientific fraud than academic fraud because i you know i don't work in academia and all of the sort of backbiting and the plagiarism and the stealing of, of credit if someone steals credit for my discovery of the general theory of relativity, I'll, you know, I'll be unhappy with them on that side of the line. But, you know, hey, he's getting my message about the general theory of relativity out then, you know, that's all good. So um, we, we need to find different ways of doing science, I think, if, if not to replace academia, then certainly to compete with it. Um, and people in industry do I think on average better science because if they do something fraudulent and their company goes to market with a product and the semiconductor doesn't work it's like hey you promised me this would you know make my iPhone twice as quick so there is a kind of re- you know requirement to produce results even then even then within commercial research there is a great deal there is a great deal of fraud um, I I you know, th- 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 I think it starts with accepting that science is being done by fallible human beings uh, who go home at the end of the day and sit down and watch TV and eat their dinner, um, rather than some kind of you know Mister Spock type uh, type individuals, and we we do create this kind of myth around scientists um, that they are in some way very special uh, individuals, and and you know the difference between a a scientist and a musician is just somebody who decides one day to give up science and go back to their love of playing the guitar. It, nothing, nothing else happens. You don't have to kind of deposit your sheriff's badge at the, at the gate. You just walk out of work one day and stop doing it. It's, it's, in a, it's a job like any other with requirements vis-a-vis the truth, but fundamentally it's done by human beings, and we don't, I think, take that into account enough. Thanks very much, then.